Hour number two of Canuck Central. If you missed the opening hour of the program, a deep dive discussion on Vasily Podkolzin and his recent play. How excited should we be about his development over the course of this season and uh, what he could continue to develop into as uh, his career is just off of the start. Also, Frank Saravalli on the coaching carousel to come in this NHL offseason. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. Sat with the uh, Vegas Golden Knights on tap. Um, reinforcements may be on the way for Vegas. They're not waiting until the start of the playoffs to activate Mark Stone. He is making the trip to Vancouver and could return to their lineup tomorrow night against the Canucks. So not only could they be at relative full strength, no Riley Smith, of course, right? But they can be relative full strength and they can be super motivated after being humiliated by Vancouver last time around in Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. And something that Peter DeBoer was very upset about. So I would expect that team to already be motivated to come in to play a strong game and they could also be you know very loaded with mark stone back and as much as this is a team that looked like they had to trade Dadnov to make the uh, to be able to activate all their players there seems to be other ways for them to activate players and kind of just shows you that if you have uh, enough players who get hurt during the season there's always a way to find a way to activate guys with ltir it's uh, it's kind of fascinating. Jesse Granger is going to get into it with us uh, a little bit on just the cap gymnastics that the Vegas Golden Knights are going through to make it work to activate Mark Stone ahead of uh, the playoffs off of LTIR. But it's an interesting spot. And one, hey, look, the Canucks can't afford one of those slow starts that they've been so prone to on home ice. I think that is obvious. Um, but... It's one of those situations, we've said that in the past, right? And uh, yet, uh, the Canucks have continued to, to have some of those starts in some of their biggest games. Even the last time uh, Vegas was here in town, that was another one of those slow start games. They were down 2 nothing uh, in the opening uh, little bit and were outshot 10-1 to uh, in the first seven minutes, I think it was, of that game here at Rogers Arena uh, just last week. So, this is another massive one and you know the the two developments we hadn't yet talked about sat here in this late season uh, Elias Pettersson finding his form again and Bo Horvat getting up and over 30 goals now I do think Horvat getting to 30 it's it's kind of a benchmark um, that we obviously look at and it does mean something. It certainly means something to players to have it on their resume. Like, hey, three 30-goal seasons through my career. All of those things matter. But in terms of Horvat hitting that benchmark, what does it mean for the Canucks? What does it mean for him to have that? For Horvat himself, more than anything, it gives him a good chip for bargaining when talking – contract extension this offseason potentially mm-hmm. or whatever else happens for him even let's just say for argument's sake that he's not going to be in vancouver or gets to free agency well having a 30 goal season on your record helps your bargaining position 
as far as as the Canucks are concerned, I don't think it materially changes anything as far as how you view Bo Horvat. It's a great achievement. We've been giving him credit uh, over the past week. He got the thirty goals and all that. But has it changed your outlook of Bo? Like him getting thirty goals, has it changed anything as far as the way we perceive him? He's a goal scoring centerman that has the potential to be a twenty five goal guy. Maybe hits thirty goals in a good year, and this year he's doing so. It's a year where scoring is up. How does he translate that next season? Uh, has he become a different player this season considerably, or is he just pretty much what we've always seen? And, and that's not necessarily a backhanded compliment or anything, but it's just to kind of say, has what really changes for him scoring thirty goals? Like, do do Van, does Vancouver look at him and say, "Oh, now we can't let him go"? I don't think that has really changed how their outlook of him and how he fits in for this team. What it's done though is helped him if he wants to make the case to get paid as much as possible. Ultimately, I still view Bo as a guy that you could probably get signed at a better rate than some of the other guys they have because he's the captain and wants to be here and all that sort of stuff. But does he kind of feel like he deserves a bit more now that he has a 30-goal season on the record? I, I, it, it's a fantastic point. Um, I, I don't think you can change your valuation of Bo just because he has a 30-goal season. I think that is the best way to look at it. Long term, I think that's what this means most for the Canucks is, does this change what Bo's asking price is going to be the comp we often use is Ryan Nugent Hopkins and his contract on an eight-year deal. Uh, Nugent has never had a 30-goal season. He reached uh, 28, I think, uh, a few years back, but never had that 30-goal mark. He's better playmaker than Bo is from, from uh, assist-wise, but you know, if you are going to keep Bo in and around the number that he's currently at, relatively, um, maybe, maybe this isn't. Uh, a great development for cap planning uh, moving forward for the Canucks. Maybe we will uh, digest that for now, shelf it, and get back to it a little bit later on this hour because right now we have Jesse Granger from The Athletic covering the Vegas Golden Knights joining us. Thanks for this, Jesse. How are you? Yeah, no problem. Doing well. How are you guys? Uh, we are uh, – we're not math wizards, so we're we're trying to figure out how the Vegas Golden Knights are going to actually activate Mark Stone here. Uh, in the in the near future, yeah, I I uh, was just joking the other day. I got into journalism because I hated math. Um, I, it was the it was the course that required the degree that required the fewest amount of math courses. Um, no, but seriously, it, it it has been crazy. I I did it. I had a really long phone call with the guys at Cap Friendly, and they kind of helped walk me through it. Those guys obviously know the numbers a lot better than I do, and. Um, it was a couple weeks ago we came up with a couple scenarios and it looks like one of them is the one that the Golden Knights are kind of choosing although they haven't gotten there quite yet they did put a few players on the long-term injured reserve in Brett Howden, Nick Haig, and Riley Smith and um, that gives them about five million dollars in space and obviously Mark Stone is a nine and a half million dollar cap hit so that leaves you with a little over four million dollars that they would still have to clear so as of right now as of today the golden knights do not have enough cap space to activate mark stone but they do have four players that are still injured and we don't know the severity on them but we do know that it's serious enough that not none of these four players are going to be going on this three-game road trip they just left vegas for vancouver today and nick haig william carrier loren bressois will not be on the road trip so or nolan patrick sorry nolan patrick's the fourth one so those four players if they were to be placed on long-term injured reserve 
it would open up enough space to activate Mark Stone. Um, I don't know if those four players are going to be out for the last nine games of the regular season or not. Um, only the Golden Knights front office can, can kind of give you that answer. But all I do know is that if they were to place those four on, injured, on long-term injured reserve, it would give them enough cap space. Pete DeBoer said today that he thinks Mark Stone is going to be an option in Vancouver. So that would lead me to believe that mm-hmm. that is kind of the plan that they're going with. Well, they certainly can do it as far as the logistics of it are concerned. And the NHL so far has not been willing to step into any of these situations, get into any team's way. The way I see this situation, and maybe it's no different than what anybody else has done, but to all of a sudden put a bunch of guys on LTIR, I wonder if the league does say anything in this situation. I don't think they will, but do they maybe start viewing some some of these situations as, okay, this is actually cap circumvention with how it's being executed? Yeah, I've I've been in a communication, not I wouldn't say constant, but I've been I've been kind of emailing back and forth with Bill Bailey about this um, from I mean from weeks ago when Mark Stone first went on LTIR uh, to make room for Jack Eichel to be activated, and he said that the the league is they they talk with these teams, they have physicians that kind of meet with their physicians. There is a process to make like the league does at least have a check and balance to they're not just allowing the teams to kind of decide for themselves. So there is that. Um, he wouldn't really get into specifics on how deep they dig. Um, I would guess that they probably don't dig super deep. I think that rather than them stepping in on a situation like this, it would probably be more so where they would just change the rule, which we've already heard from the GM meetings that they may be considering changing the rule to, to either extend the salary cap into the playoffs or whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I, I think with injuries, it's so tough, right? Because everyone wants it to be black and white. This player is injured. He belongs in LTR. This isn't. Hockey players are all hurt all the time, right? I mean, it's, it's such a gray area. And who, who are we to decide what percentage of health a player should be at to, to be put on LTIR or whatnot? So, yes, I think there may be some, some bending of the rules by the Golden Knights. But I also think these players are all injured. And it's tough to determine which ones are belong on LTIR and which don't. Uh, five wins in their last six uh, for this Vegas team. Obviously, the one loss uh, coming to to this Vancouver Canucks team, and they are both uh, fighting tooth and nail for that playoff spot that the LA Kings might be coughing up here towards the end of the season. Um, but what's what's clicking lately for this this Knights team? Finally, um, well, I think it's a combination of things. I think a big part of it that shouldn't be overlooked is this is the softest part of their entire schedule. So. Um, going six and one is, is about what you should expect from the Golden Knights. I mean, considering Vancouver is really the only team that's even in playoff contention that they've played during this stretch. They've played, it'll be Vancouver three times. They've played Arizona, who's near the bottom. They, they played Seattle twice, who are also near the bottom, and Chicago, whose season is pretty much over. So I think that has contributed to it. But on the ice, um, they've got really good goaltending. When Logan... When Robin Leonard was injured, Logan Thompson played really, really well, like phenomenally. And and then Robin Leonard has come back, and he's since played pretty well, um, except for that one game against Vancouver where they lost. But I think the whole team was so bad that game, it's tough to judge the goalie. So I think the goaltending has been good, and then I think they've been a lot more solid defensively. They've obviously been banged up all year, but they got Alec Martinez and Braden McNabb both back um, in the lineup for this stretch. And it's, it's pretty obvious um, immediately how, how big of an impact those guys have on the back end. Vegas has really good defensemen, obviously Petrangelo and Theodore, but those guys are offensive weapons. They're really aggressive. They're constantly activating in the offensive zone, and they're not 
the most solid in their own zone because of that. They're being counted on to produce offense. You bring two guys that are veterans that block shots like Braden McNabb and Alec Martinez back in the lineup, and I think it really solidified their back end. So you combine the goaltending with good, solid defending, and you're going to win a lot of games. Yeah, no doubt about that. And when I look at a guy like Jack Eichel, and Dan and I were talking about this on our pre-show meeting, yeah, the offense is coming along. It's not at an incredible level, but you start digging through some of the defensive metrics, and they have been kind of impressive. What do you make of the way Jack Eichel is rounding into form? Yeah, I think um, you're right. His numbers aren't, his offensive numbers aren't out of this world, but I think when you consider coming off an 11-month layoff Mm -hmm. in a new team for the first time, in a new system for the first time. Um, I think his offense has been phenomenal. And then, like you said, he's he's, – I wouldn't say his defense has been great, but it's been solid, and he is so fast. To me, the one thing that stands out, like I, like I watched Eichel in Buffalo, but not on a nightly basis like I am here in Vegas. And to me, the thing that stands out the most is his speed and his ability to, to, put, to apply black, back pressure on when, when the other team's coming through the neutral zone. I mean, he'll be, he'll be three or four strides behind the puck carrier in the neutral zone. And he just, with one stride, catches up to him. And that back pressure doesn't allow guys to slow down. I mean, as, as the defensemen are closing their gaps, it just they feel cornered and they force, it forces them into a turnover. So to me, using his speed in the neutral zone to, to kind of catch up to the play, to, to accelerate, to, to pressure a guy that maybe wasn't expecting to be pressured that soon has really helped the Golden Knights. And, and that's kind of their system. They love forcing that pressure right right when teams cross the red line and trying to force a turnover and turn it into transition, Pete DeBoer switched to that one, one, three, four check this year to really emphasize that. And I think Jack Eichel has just helped them. Really uh, effortless skating stride uh, that, that Eichel has. And uh, you, you notice it more when you see him playing live. I, um, I wonder what the lineup looks like, uh, with, uh, closer to full health, uh, Jesse, you know, uh, does does Jack Eichel center a line with Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone? Is that eventually how you think Pete Dore wants this to Pete DeBoer wants this to line up? Yeah, that's kind of what everyone has assumed would happen ever since they traded for Eichel um, in November. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I know that Pete DeBoer has has really harped on depth, and I think as they've gotten players back into the lineup, he talks so much about wanting to to run four lines and have three lines with legitimate scoring threat. And I could see a way that because Jack Eichel is producing with Dodonov and Wall, who are Dodonov and Wall are solid players, but they aren't top line players. Jack Eichel's kind of dragging that line along, and he's been doing it pretty well, I think maybe there's a chance Pete could say, you know what, let's just let Eichel carry those two guys and let's put Pacioretty and Stone back with Chandler Stevenson. I mean, from the moment Chandler Stevenson came to Vegas, he has centered Pacioretty and Stone, and that's been one of, if not the best lines in all of hockey. Um, so I, I wouldn't put it past them to to kind of just throw those three back together, let Jonathan Marcheseau and William Carlson really handle business on their line. Um, Riley Smith is still out. He, he obviously won't be back for a while, but uh, I think they, they, they have a chance to have three really dangerous lines with, with star players that can score on them. Um, I don't know if that's going to be – that, that's how they lined up today. Mark Stone was down on the third line with Patch Reddy and Stevenson. I think that might just be trying to maybe ease him into things, not give him first-line minutes right away. But, it may, if, I mean, if it works, then that, they'll probably just settle on that. So I think there are a couple options. 
On the back end, I wanted to ask you about Shea Theodore specifically as well, because he started off so well offensively, then kind of went through that spell where he wasn't producing a lot. And then I think it's the past, what, six, seven games, he's been close to a point per game and his ice time, the last couple of games have kind of gone up again. What do you make of his season and kind of his standing with the organization? Yeah, Shea Theodore is in an interesting situation because it, it really seemed like he was going to be the guy after that playoffs in the bubble. Um, and, and he was the one that finally beat Thatcher Demko in that series against Vancouver. He was, he was the guy. I mean, he was, he, I think, a point per game during those playoffs. And it really looked like that was his breakout party. And he was going to be a Norris contender for the next few years. And then that offseason, they, they signed Alex Petrangelo. And he came in and kind of filled that that number one defenseman spot. And it kind of puts Shea Theodore down into the second pairing and he still gets plenty of minutes and he plays on the power play. So it's not like he was minimalized, but it just felt like he didn't take that step that everyone kind of thought he was going to after those playoffs. Um, He's still been a solid player. His, his weaknesses are, I mean, he turns the puck over a little too much, but that's what you expect for a guy that's as aggressive and as offensively skilled as he is. Uh, You kind of take that with, with what you get from him. But um, this year, the, the offense hasn't come for him, but I think it's also a product of the Golden Knights have been so injured up front that I think Theodore and Petrangelo, their point totals have suffered just because the guys that they're quick up in the puck to aren't as talented. It isn't Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty and Riley Smith and Jonathan Marshall. So it's been Michael Amadio and, and, and Jake LeCision. And get, like, no, no offense to those guys, but they're, they're bottom six players. And in Jake LeCision and in Jonas Rombier's case, they're AHL guys that didn't expect to play in the NHL this year and have played almost the full season up with the big clubs. So I think that part is, is a big part of why Theodore's numbers haven't been there. And then I think the Golden Knights power play has been abysmal, just about as awful as it can be considering the players that are on the ice. And that's where Shea Theodore, I mean, that's pretty much every top defenseman in this league. You're going to pick up a lot of your points quarterback in that power play. So when the power play is not scoring, neither are you. So I don't think Theodore's been had a bad season. I think he's he's been solid back there, good but not great. And I think a lot of the circumstances around him have led to um, a, a bit of a dip offensively from what he was used to. Last thing before we let you go, Jesse, um, obviously huge expectations for this Vegas team. What happens if they don't make the playoffs? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, it's it's kind of hard to answer because this is a team that if, if you would have told me before the season, if this team misses the playoffs, what happens? I would have said, well, probably everyone's fired um, because of the expectations and Bill Foley is about as aggressive of an owner as you can have. But then when you actually look at how it's happened, it's like, okay, who are you going to fault in this? Um, I have a hard time faulting Pete DeBoer. He's, I think Pete DeBoer's done one of his best coaching jobs he's done um, by being able to get this team to where they are. You look at other teams that have suffered similar injuries to the Golden Knights. Montreal has gone from a conference final appearance or a Stanley Cup final appearance to one of the worst teams in the league. Um, you saw what happened to the Sharks. The year Pete DeBoer got fired there, they got hurt and they just completely tanked. The fact that this Golden Knights team has kept its head above water and is in position to make a run now that they're getting a little healthier, I think is a credit to Pete DeBoer. Um, and then the front office, yeah, they've made some, I mean, trading Marc-Andre Fleury was a questionable move, but at the same time, that's not the reason that they're, if they were to miss the playoffs, the reason is all these injuries. So I don't know what happens if the Golden Knights miss the playoffs. It's going to come down to Pete, to, to owner Bill Foley and who, who he thinks is to blame, what he thinks is to blame. And if, if you, 
come to the conclusion that this is just a really bad luck season with a lot of injuries that they really couldn't have predicted, um, I think you may just say, you know what, let's roll it back next year and see if they can win. Jesse, I really appreciate your time and your insights. Thanks for this. Enjoy the game tomorrow. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, There is Jesse Granger of The Athletic covering the Vegas Golden Knights. Big expectations, uh, potentially missing the playoffs. It's uh, it is kind of fascinating to see how uh, Vegas ownership, Bill Foley, will handle that sort of a thing. Sat because there's legitimate reasons for why they've underachieved this year, but also a team that's just been really forcing and really, you know, constantly aggressive towards their goal of winning the Stanley Cup after the surprise expansion year. Well, and you have to take that route when you have that type of success early on. You're there, you're ready, you have to win. And that pursuit, yeah, I mean, I don't have an issue with being cutthroat about it. It's more about how you treat people in the way you do so and how you maintain that culture. And that's been the biggest challenge, perhaps, that they've kind of gone through. But this year specifically... Sure, you can make a coaching change or a GM change if you want, but you're essentially making that change because injuries happen. And that doesn't seem like a smart way of of doing business. I don't see that being the case. But that's a team that now with Jack Eichel and now with some of these cornerstone players, it is going to be fascinating. However, you know, you know me and and, and Shay, the whole Shea Theodore angle, and you keep kind of seeing, we've had a few guys on from Vegas, and when we ask about Shea Theodore, you hear the responses. Like, it's good, not great. You know, he's not what people thought he would be, and yet I'm sitting here looking at his numbers, Reach. He has 40, what, two points in 69 games. That's not bad <laughs> for a defenseman yeah. who's kind of struggling. And, you know, he's still a, an even player. And, and, and I wonder if, if it's also about, what's going on with him and his fit with that team and perhaps him them going out and get Petrangelo and all of a sudden paying him a ton of money when he's on a really good contract all of a sudden. It may not just be about the role, but you know how, how guys kind of they get rubbed the wrong way when you pay other guys who haven't been with your team. And here is a guy who's on a really good contract. And you kind of wonder about those things. And it's not that, you know, he can't be good again because he is still good, but it seems like they don't view him the same way. He doesn't view that or situation the same way either. And if he's going to be available this off season, man, I think whatever team is able to acquire Shea Theodore is going to be super, super happy because he's going to explode on a new team. Like He he can be a complete all-around defenseman when he's on top of his game. Could be a number one guy has finished uh, not too far off being a finalist for the Norris in the last couple of seasons as well. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. When we come back, the season for the Canucks... They're a win away from, at worst, being a 500 team for the year. After the incredibly poor start that they had, how do we view this season on the whole? We'll go through that next on Canuck Central. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Coming up after 6 o'clock, Don Taylor, the legend himself will join us. Don Taylor coming up uh, shortly here on uh, Canuck Central as he does every single Monday. Sat, the Canucks are um, a win away from at worst being a 500 team this season. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest. like I did not think that was possible when they made the, <laughs> coach, when they made the coaching change. Well, just 500? Yeah, like getting to 82 points on the year after the start yeah. they had. 
Yeah, you know what? I, you know now it seems like okay. Well, yeah, you, you know what? At the moment, I, I I would say a lot of people thought so. I still kind of thought that they would you know bounce back and kind of get to you know an eighty point range somewhere. Like I thought maybe they finished with like eighty four or eighty six or something. Like I, I could have seen eighty six with just you know you get a bounce from the coach and the team was better than what they showed and all that sort of stuff. But to be pushing, you know, most likely 90 points as far as their projection goes, because you're right. I mean, they're going to hit 82. And a lot of a lot of people did not think that was even possible, like you just mentioned yourself. But the fact they make Crest 90 points, even if they don't make the playoffs, just kind of tells you how remarkable the turnaround has been under Boudreaux, because you're right. When Boudreaux took over, this team wasn't just on pace to miss the playoffs. They were on pace to have one of the worst seasons in franchise history. They uh, had eight wins in those first 25 games before the change was made. And, you know, as uh, Francesco Aquilini at the time said, uh, maybe he waited a little bit too long uh, to make the move. He had hoped that they would turn it around at some point. And, you know, kind of thinking about it, as how it happened, you know, the first 25 games and going through it a little bit, you look back, there was a lot of one goal losses. There was a lot of games where they didn't give up an even strength goal, but ended up losing anyways, because they couldn't stop a goal from going in on the penalty kill to save their life for a certain amount of time. They had other stretches where they just got obliterated by the Colorado Avalanche and some bigger teams. But a lot of those games were pretty tight. And it was a feeling of, hey, if the offense just kind of finds a way to start going, maybe there's some some wins here. And This is like under Travis Green that I'm still talking about those first 25 games. But it just it never really did come around. And there was th- those games where it just looked completely hopeless at the same time, but you know, they weren't completely awful. They had a a run where their offense just wasn't going. They couldn't score on the power play and the penalty kill continued to let them down time. Well, the PK was yeah, the PK was god awful. I mean, it, it was historically bad on pace to be the worst PK in like NHL history at one point. But there were elements of the game that you know weren't terrible. Like their five on five defense yeah. was was okay, and their goaltending was was great. But they couldn't score to save their life, and it was the PK that on a lot of nights, especially in those close games, it was their penalty kill that just continuously let them down time and time again. It it really was the PK and just overall their lack of chance generation. It wasn't just that they weren't scoring; they weren't generating chances, and, yeah. and that was the biggest thing for me as far as okay, what what reason do we have to believe that they can be better than this? And listen, this conversation is going to evolve. It, just being good enough to get into the postseason and just being good enough to get to five hundred point percentage and all that doesn't mean you're a great team. It's just to kind of signify, you know, how far you've gone. I see, you know, Mike and Richmond and Nate from Comox mentioning what is real 500. We're not talking about what what real 500 should be considered or not. The NHL determines um, 500 based on point percentage. So that's how, how it's calculated. That's the conversation. It's not about team strength. It's just a conversation about where you are in the standings and how many points you've accrued. And that is how 500 is calculated. So, so you look at how they've played. And earlier this 
this year, I still believe this team could have been a lot better. Now, I did not think at all that they were going to be able to get back into the playoff conversation. Like, I did not think that was going to happen when the change occurred initially. They were just so far behind. And we've mentioned it. The Canucks dug a bigger hole than the Blues dug that year they made the postseason. And the Blues, they made the most unlikely postseason run and ended up winning the Stanley Cup that year of any team post lockout. Right, I mean, post-cap era. So current in the cap era, no team's gone on a better run or been that far out of it to make the playoffs than the Blues. Well, the Canucks have to go on a bit bigger run than that to make the postseason. That's how far behind they were, and that's how big the gap was for them. So that's why I never thought they would even get into this conversation. But all along, I never accepted for a moment that Pedersen was going to be a 35-point player. I never for a moment accepted that... Um, their top-end guys were un- incapable of playing high-end hockey or have the ability in them to at least be competitive. So I always thought they could bounce back, but I didn't think they would be able to make up as much ground as they've done. It was uh, you know, a, a combination of a few things, but yeah, Patterson is incredibly slow start to the season, um, having very minimal impact at either end of the ice was a huge mm-hmm. concern and something we talked about and argued about for for a lot of time here on the show but Horvat as much as we're praising him now he's been on this incredible run but where was he before this incredible run he was not having a great season until he's really popped off here the last six weeks or so for a ton of goals Brock Besser Boudreau essentially said that yeah. today right he's like he's like hey when he's consistent he's really good but he hasn't always been consistent he's if he has games where I'm like man this guy's awesome and other games he's not there so everybody's been inconsistent this year everybody has had their spells you know we talk so much about Besser he finally started going once Boudreau came in and uh and now again he's he's kind of going through it and was going through it before before the injury, Connor Garland started well, but then he started to tail off. You know, like you go through every player on this roster, they've all had their ups and downs outside of a very few. And the ones that we constantly mentioned, JT Miller is going to have a 90 point season. Quinn Hughes, who's been really good. And obviously Thatcher Demko, but it, it, it hasn't been clean. And certainly those first 25 games, there was a lot of blame to go around. And, you know, I start thinking about it now, given that they are, so close to the playoff bar, but ultimately may end up falling short here, Sad, as they are still very much a long shot as it stands with nine games to go. But how much do you lament that start to the season? Like, it, it may end up being if they just had one or two more wins, uh, <laughs> they they could have been in. Or is it more of do you take confidence that the, the organization is in a much better direction uh, now than they were maybe at the start of the year, given uh, the changes and the overall outlook the organization currently has. So, if they would have, if they would have had Boudreaux here all season, the, do I think this is a playoff team? Probably, right? Like, I think they probably get in. Yeah. However, I don't think that overshadows a lot of the immaturity and the unprofessionalism with this team at times. They they work hard, right? Um, they care. They clearly do. But as far as being ultimately prepared and, and being self-motivated and driven and on top of, of things, they haven't exhibited those things for a couple of years now. And even throughout Boudreaux's tenure, that has cropped up in a very inopportune time. So it's not just that they've had bad, they had a bad start. And of course, had they not had the bad start, they might be a playoff team. But 
they've also had many moments where they've cost themselves and it's been a bit of a trend and a habit with this team. The underbelly isn't great. They've, they've, they've shown their butts a few times, right? And I think that is something that we can't overlook because, yeah, sure, the bad start, but also that homestand. Also, some critical games against against teams you should be beating. We can go through and you look yeah. at it, you're like, you know what? That game, they didn't show up. How many games did they not score the first goal? How many games did they not show up being ready to play, right? How did they respond to a lot of games? There's so many critical moments, even under Boudreaux. What this team has shown, they're not quite ready to be in that upper echelon yet. And that's fine if you have cap space, right? Because then it's like, okay, you build on it and you add to it and you, know, you take that step and you mature as a team. But... Because you don't have that flexibility, how much can you really bet that this team's going to figure it out next year too and beyond? So even though they are most likely, they would have most likely been a playoff team had Boudreaux been here all season, I don't think that changes the equation of things that have to kind of change here and that the underbelly is still something that has to get cleaned out. And it is something that this team has to face. They have to really mature and become a far better, more professional group in terms of their preparation and and how they're consistent year in and year out, game in and game out too. It's hard to be overly confident about how the season has gone since Boudreaux took over and that it will guaranteed continue into into next year because there's still a, a cloud of change that's, hanging over the organization. It's not something that you're looking at and being like, yeah, we're going to run this thing back and uh, <laughs> we think we'll do a lot better next year given how we finished uh, the season since we made the coaching change. I, I don't, I, it definitely doesn't work like that uh, with this team because we know there's going to be turnover. Heck, the coach may not even continue uh, with this team as it currently stands. That's still a question Mark, but they have been incredibly consistent under Boudreaux, and that has allowed them to give you some confidence, give you some hope that they were right. The building blocks are here. Pedersen, Hughes, Demko, you have renewed confidence in Horvat with the way that he's playing lately. You have a question mark around JT Miller and the cost there, of course, but it's not as much as yes, you're liking and have been enjoying this run. It's not something you're like, yeah, they they'll run this back next year. No, the, the the cap doesn't allow you to do that. We understand that there's serious flaws on this team. We understand there's a new front office that definitely has a different view of where they want to take this team, even if they really haven't put their stamp on exactly what that is yet, there's just so much that still needs to happen with this team that whatever confidence you have in what we've seen through this second half of the season, it's it's not exactly something you can bank on just continuing into next year because there still definitely feels as though they're not feels even there there will be a lot of turnover yeah. on this roster next year sad well there will be and and there should be lots of turnover here ultimately because you have to you know take a bit of a step back like the team has set itself before they can take a leap forward and what this team has shown under Boudreaux is they can be a bubble team 
They're a bubble team. But if you max out as a bubble team, that's not a good spot to be in still. Like, if that's your best, you still have to get better. You still have to make some tough decisions. And you can you can credit them from getting back in the race. You can credit them for working hard. You can credit Bruce and the entire organization for how they've handled things since the changes were made, right? And the results have been far better. And I think it's been very important for the results to be better, especially to regain confidence in a lot of core players on this team again and, and really understanding and knowing who should stay and who you should look to move out. But those changes have to happen now, right? And this offseason, those changes will happen. And when you start looking at, okay, how many players are coming back? Well, we've mentioned the three that aren't going anywhere, right? And that is Pedersen, it is Hughes, it is Demko. Those guys ain't going anywhere. No. But as far as who else we add to that conversation or add to that list, I should say, uh, that's a far more difficult thing to kind of figure out. Oliver Ekman Larson. Isn't going he's, anywhere. He's a shoe in, 100%. Yeah. And I mean, that's what Alvin told us when we asked him uh, on Friday about his play. He said, hey, we think he'll be even better next season. And we feel very good about our defense with having Quinn and OEL on our left side. It's it's a piece they, they can't move, right? Yeah. So, so you're almost... Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying I'm taking that with a grain of salt, Sat. I'm just saying uh, Patrick Alvin knows he's not moving... All you can't do Larson. anything. Yeah. Yeah. He's not doing anything. He's not going anywhere, right? The, he's staying here. The contract yeah. plus the no move clause. He's not going anywhere. And you know what? He has played a lot better than uh, a lot of people expected. And even lately, he has been really good again. And especially with the games that Quinn missed, he really stepped up in those games. And he has been, on the whole, impressive this season remember the the talks we had when the trade was made and there's people being like this guy's a bum he's not even a nhl defenseman anymore and uh, that's that's clearly not the case outside of that outside of those four i i don't see who else you can have supreme confidence in returning certainly there are guys i think that uh, i would bring back you know like I'm still not really interested in moving on from from Brock Besser with with how the situation currently stands. I think there is an avenue to continue that relationship mm-hmm. and bank on Besser having a better year next year. Um, Horvat Miller, one of them stays. I'm saying Horvat. I think we all know Horvat is the more probable at this point, but I don't know if there's a future with both of them on this roster given the salary cap constraints that you have and where Miller's number may end up after the season he's just had sat. Yeah. And even, you know, to somebody who texted in and, and to give them credit, made the point about, but wait, what if Bo scores 35? And what if next year he pushes that up a bit more? Does that not change the conversation as far as him as a player and, and his production and his salary? Well, it definitely would make a difference in his salary, right? And so if you're adding more money to him, then even to keep Bo Horvat, well, it's going to cost you a bit more than you anticipated. And it's still going to be less than JT Miller, but you definitely can't bring both back now when maybe there was a world where, you know, Bo takes a little bit less and JT takes a little bit less, but it's still decent money. And, you know, you can make this work. It's going to be hard to, you know, make that argument now with both guys, you know, putting together good seasons, especially Bo getting the 30 goals. So I think and that even, even with harder. all those hurdles said, it's like the team hasn't been good enough with this current core anyways, no, right? Well, so. exactly. That, that's even, I mean, that goes, that's the point. So when I look at this list, right? And so these are the guys I'm unsure of. 
Horvat, Miller, Garland, Besser, Pearson, Myers. Like, I'm unsure about these guys. And even if you want to throw Lamical in there, like, I'm unsure. Like, if, if he didn't get qualified, I wouldn't shock me. Now, I believe he will because he's so cheap. But if he didn't because they just want to move on, it wouldn't surprise me either, right? Mm-hmm. The guys I believe are staying, or at least you would feel good about, well, we mentioned OEL alongside the three other guys, Demko, Hughes, and Pedersen. I yep. think Shen at this point is probably staying because if you didn't move him at the deadline, you're probably not moving him now, right? Yeah. So I, I think Shen's probably a guy that stays. And put Colson for sure. And there's a couple other guys, but I think put Colson for sure at this point. Yeah, maybe there's something that comes along that you can't resist. But w- with what he's showing now late in the season and with how young he is and being controllable, you so many few prospects they have, it just doesn't seem like he's a, he's a guy that's going anywhere. Pod Colson, um, I, I can't see moving either, especially with how well he's played lately and the potential there. I mean, this team... One thing I don't think Alvin can really afford to do is pass on players with upside on this roster. Because there's not a ton within the organization that have big upside. Pod Colson and maybe Hoaglander, from a forward perspective, are the only ones. Right? Like Lockwood, potential ceiling-wise, is a fourth-line guy. Um, Down on the farm... You go through the names, there's not a ton of, hey, this guy's got a massive, massive ceiling. There's just question marks. And so I think you have to look at guys like Pod Colson and Hoaglander and say, you know, I personally would say Hoaglander's not a guy you move off of, but I, at the same time, I understand he could be a trade piece uh, if this team wants to look at something else. But in any case, I think it just really speaks to the idea that everybody on this roster, outside of, again, 40, 43, 35, and 23, Oliver ekman Larson, like there, there is a question mark, and you can yeah. really talk yourself into staying or moving on from pretty much any other player outside of those four. Oh, a- a- absolutely. Like even Hoaglander, if this was a year ago, we'd have him in the, he's definitely not going anywhere pile. Right now, he's in the unsure, likely to come back. He's likely to come back, but still, there's still a level of uncertainty around what decision they're going to make on him or, or any other player here, right? So I'd say Shen and Perhaps a guy like Cal Burrows, you know, because yeah. he's a guy that would have value. And had he not been injured, maybe he would have got dealt and somebody would have given the Canucks something that they would have been okay to move in for. That's probably not available for you in season to the same degree, but it could be available to you next season. And just having a guy that's getting paid 750K that can play depth minutes for you. And you can pencil into your, you know, top six or top seven or top eight, or at least in a depth role for you. There is value in having that and having two guys that are cheap in that regard. And, and I'd say Dermot probably fits that category too, because he was just acquired. So he's probably not going anywhere either. I'd say there's a pretty good chance he comes back as well. So I'd say on the back end, there's quite a few candidates. So it doesn't become very difficult to start looking at, at a guy like Tyler Myers and how aggressive they may be in trying to move that salary in the offseason, because it makes more sense to keep all the other guys. And especially with Tucker Pullman due to injury, 
probably not going anywhere. Yeah, there's uh, guys like Myers and Pearson. I mean, it um, when you really start going through it and you see them as potential pieces to really help this team move off of some salary and uh, really open up some flexibility should they be able to move on from those players. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah coming up. Don Taylor joins us as uh, the Canucks talk continues here on Canucks Central. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. It is uh, Canucks Central here on SportsCent 650. I understand uh, we're having some uh, difficulties with our station signal right now. There's other avenues for you to uh, try out listening to Canuck Central. Uh, live, you can listen anytime on the Sportsnet app, wherever you are. TuneIn Radio app works very well also. Um, you can try in your car with HD radio. So 96.9 on your FM dial. Newer cars will have the option to go to HD3 96.9. That's where you'll be able to find us and a much cleaner audio feed than what you would get on the AM dial. And also you can listen on podcast at your leisure, on demand, whenever you want. Every post-game show, every interview, every segment is all available on the podcast. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whichever you prefer. It is there and available for you. Subscribe and leave a review. We do very much appreciate it. It's uh, Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. A lot of reaction coming in on uh, our conversation there, Sat, about uh, the the future of this Canucks team. And it is a fascinating one. One we'll uh, definitely have to go through and parse through over the course of the summer. But it's a clean slate, and uh, just listening back to Canuck Central on Friday with Patrick Alvine, it's pretty clear the the club is not tipping their hand exactly on uh, what they will or won't do this upcoming offseason. No, what they've told us are the broad strokes, and they've been very honest about those, right? They said, we want to clear cap space and get younger. They trade Hamannick and bring Dermott in, clear cap space and get younger. They said they're not going to let UFAs walk for nothing. They tra- uh, traded Tyler Mott because they couldn't get him signed. They've essentially done what they've said. However, they're not giving you details on whom they're making these decisions on and what they're going to do. And part of it kind of comes off as, okay, maybe they're not showing a lot of confidence in individuals. I believe what it is is more about not playing your hand, right? Or not giving anything away more than anything else. And you see this a lot now with with the more modern front offices in the NFL too and in baseball where guys, GMs will talk but not say anything. You see that with the Jays with Ross Atkins, for instance. We'll give you broad strokes but never specifics. Always open to stuff but also not very not too committal to anything. You see it in football all the time with the good GMs uh, that speak that way too. And that's the way I read it more than anything else. It's about not playing your hand and not giving any way, giving away anything specifically good or bad on your your individual assets, but still giving you enough broad stroke wise that you feel like you can trust the message. Well, it is um, in contrast to the previous regime who had difficulty um, sort of communicating their plan with the fan base. And I think that was, you know, I mean, obviously the the actual moves is what end up being your downfall. But I think there's a lot of angst when you're unable to properly communicate 
your plan with your fan base. And I think there's a lot that goes into that. It's not on any one individual. I think the club um, didn't do any favors for itself in how they uh, went about, you know, going uh, through the phase of the post-Sedin era or the end of the Sedin era and into a new, uh, into a new era. So there, there was just a lot there. Um, but clearly Jim Rutherford and Patrick Aldine have been open about how they want to have the next few months play out and what they plan on doing, but obviously have been uh, very smart about uh, making sure they don't lose any leverage with any asset they may have within the organization. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw. Let's bring in our next guest. He's the legend, Don Taylor himself. Donnie and Dolly, 10 to noon, check TV. We ask every week, Donnie, how you doing? Uh, what's up? What, what are you up to? <laughs> Uh, Don't I'm say nothing far. much. No, no, no. I'm actually <laughs> well. I'm watching the Blue Jays, but uh, also I've been I've been gardening out in the sun today, so wait, which is very wait. zen. Yeah, you're watching the Blue Jays, aren't you? Usually chirping, uh, you know, Sportsnet or whomever else for putting too much Blue Jays coverage on. Listen, I know where you're from, okay? And <laughs> let me just say this: that it's not it's not the Blue Jays, and. It, I've gone. I've spent a lot of time in Toronto. Like Sportsnet used to send us there all the time. I spent an entire month in a hotel room in Yorkville. It was unbelievable. I loved it. It was fantastic. Well, a few nights it's at Hemingway's, I guess. Hey, it's uh, y- yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't remember them, uh, but uh, it's the coverage that is given by the so-called national networks versus everybody else. Like I know Austin Matthews is probably going to win the Hard Trophy, and deservedly so. I- I'll admit that. Mm-hmm. But have we heard? much about Goudreau? I mean, he should be in the conversation. You never hear, you rarely hear anything about him. So it's that sort of thing that bothers me. It's not the team or the players or anything like that, or, or the city, which I really like. I love, as a matter of fact, it's just the coverage, and it's the business that I'm in, and sometimes it, sometimes it bothers me. Well, you're you not wrong agree, about that, by the way. No, yeah. uh, <laughs> no, you're not wrong about that because I'm with you as far as it just gets so overwrought, right? Like I understand yeah. why it's about the numbers, but still, it's it's just very eye roll. But I, I know, I've I've always been a Jays fan, though, Donnie. I yeah. will say I've, I've yeah. always admitted it. But they're a fun team, though. Right, I mean, as a sports fan, even if you're not a Jays fan, if you're a baseball fan, like they actually are a fun team that is likable this season. Yeah, and, and, and of course, for us here in Vancouver, uh, there's the Canadians connection uh, as well. I know Nate Pearson is, uh, is not feeling well these days, but and there are others there. So uh, there, there, there's that connection as well. But it's not only that they're just a fun team. It's that, you know, uh, you remember Bichette's dad. I mean, I do, and Guerrero, same thing, yeah. uh, uh, you know. Not so much Biggio, but I mean, not so much him, but his dad certainly remember. But but there's that as well, and then there's those players that are their stars, that are the sons of really really solid major leaguers. Um, they're they're they just have a ton of personality as well. They just ooze personality. So no, they're, they're, there's that absolutely, and I, I I do not deny that for a second. They are a likable team. I can see why people would would get behind them but again it's not the teams not the players not the city it's just the coverage that gets to me so it's kind of my own business that bothers me when it comes to comes to the city of toronto and the other thing with the blue jays too i had a hard time at first because uh we're, we're going back to the 70s sorry sorry guys but we're going back to the 70s here you're a yankees was, fan aren't you 
Well, I'm a Yankees fan, but first and foremost, before that, when you're talking about the National League, and I don't care, Washington Nationals are not the Expos. I was always an Expos fan, and I just, I just love that team. Uh, you know, Blue Monday and all that broke my heart, all, all of that. So I always felt more of an allegiance, allegiance to the Expos, and I understand uh, from what I've heard uh, they moved. So I've got to, I've got to, I've got to accept that one of these days. Don Taylor uh, joining us here on uh, on Sportsnet 650. And hey, the Mariners are, are uh, looking to be a pretty good team this year too. So it should uh, should be an interesting uh, summer from a baseball fan's perspective. Um, you know, since you were you, you mentioned Matthews, uh, he's having this great uh, goal scoring season, and uh, you know, Leaf, Leafs uh, Nation is really fawning over it. It's it's pretty incredible. Fifty one goals in the last fifty games. But um, what's what's the best goal scoring season in Canucks history? I guess it's you know Burray's got the two sixty goal season, so yeah. so that's yeah. got to be it. But McGillney's fifty five was pretty special, and and obviously Nasland uh, with the forty eight goal season too. Yeah, I think you know I might go off the charts a bit. I mean Burray was just an, on, in, on a, in another world, and so let's let's everybody knows how great that was and. He just seemed so automatic every time he stepped on the ice. But McGillney's season was important in that he got 55 goals the year that Pavel got hurt. Uh, the year Pavel hurt his knee, so it was a, it was really important that that happened uh, for for the franchise. And mm-hmm. um, one of the problems with that season, and I don't to this day understand it, is that it wasn't a problem with the season. It's what happened in the off season. Is that McGillney and Ronning really worked well together? And for uh, whatever reason, Pat uh, traded Cliff Ronning. It might have had something to do with Cliff extending his shifts. I'm not really sure, but uh, <laughs> but, but it was that, that was a real disappointment. But that 55 yeah. goal season, I, I guess I would pick that just because it's the one people forget about. Maybe that's that, that's that's why I'll go with that. Yeah, and I, and I just overall think we forget about how good Alex McGillney was. I mean, his his three year spell in Vancouver, or I guess it was even longer, I guess. But I mean, uh, yeah, it, it was yeah the the five years he spent in Vancouver, and then he got traded. If you start going over the numbers and what he did, it really was pretty impressive. It's just because he, he he came off those seventy point years, right, hundred point years, and he was kind of around a point per game. That's why it seemed disappointing, just in relative nature. Well, uh, and, and I think relevance. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And I think two guys with McGillney, there was this thought, and it never really happened, partially through injury, partially because I guess you know things change over time. There was the thought that they would be magic together, McGillney and yeah. Burray, and it never really happened. So you you think of McGillney's time in Vancouver, and you think, wow, they never had the chemistry together. But the reality is, Alex McGillney's numbers were really good, and then he goes off to New Jersey, lands the Canucks. Brandon Morrison and Dennis Peterson and and Al, Alex goes on and win, wins himself a Stanley Cup. So I think he I think he might fall into the category of underrated Canuck. And part of that is because I think most of us think of him as a saber. Uh, I know he bounced around at the end of his career. I went to the Leafs as well, but but that's part of the reason why he's not mentioned in the same breath. And he didn't spend a whole lot of time here. The other thing with Alex, you always got the feeling like um, uh, like he was a guy who was really, really good. Like, he was unbelievable at hockey. I'm not so sure he loved it, like Pavel did, mm-hmm. like like other players. You know, I'm not so sure. I just think he happened to be talented. And that's, that's and, and I may be wrong with that, 
But that's the feeling I got hanging around the team. And I think people watching felt that way too. He was incredibly talented. I'm not so sure he followed the game or yeah. loved the game. Part of what made him—he was a really likable guy. It was that was part of what made him made him likable. There was a lot to him. There were a lot of layers to him. Yeah, he he uh, has, has since like disappeared off the face of the earth. Like nobody knows where he is now. Well, I know where he. I, I I'll guarantee where he is. He's somewhere on a golf course. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I and somebody who was around the team. I was around the team a lot back then, but I'm pretty sure he got introduced to the game of golf here. When he, when he started playing with the Canucks, and you know what golf's like. When, once you, you get hooked, you get hooked. And he, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure, and I think he got his handicap down the whole bit. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's spending a whole lot of time, uh, you know, chasing a golf ball around. Well, you talk to, to, to players from that era, and, you know, they would have played with Beret and McGilney. And a lot of them will say, like, no, McGilney was the more talented guy. Yeah, I, I think in terms of like stick skills and and, yeah. and you know, uh, you know um, certainly not speed. But, you know, Beret had him beat. Beret had the speed. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of stick skills and maybe maybe even vision, mm-hmm. I, I would give the maybe maybe give the nod to uh, McGilney. But in terms of just wanting to put on a show and and having speed to burn. And electrifying audiences, it was beret. One uh, one last thing on on McGilney, uh, producer Eddie Gregory uh, filled me in. His fifty five goal season, four mm. goals in his last nineteen games. Oh my! Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. There you go. Could have easily been a sixty goal season. Well, maybe they decided to cover him. Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Don Taylor joining us uh, here on Canucks Central. So, uh, uh, all right, you, you mentioned Boudreaux as you know a guy who should be getting some some hype for uh, maybe the Jack Adams, maybe not win it, but at, at least be in the conversation for what he's done. The Canucks are a top ten team since he he took over in in December, and the fact that they are still kicking around in this playoff race is is kind of fascinating, Donnie. It's um, yeah. yeah, like. I, I, we were just talking about it in the previous segment. I, I personally, they're one win away from being at worst a 500 team this year. You know, 82 points. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I did not think that was even a remote possibility when Boudreaux took over. And and, and just the season that it's been. Um, uh, uh, Jack Adams award, I, I kind of doubt it. But, me, you know, on the fringes of the conversation, how about that? And he wouldn't be the first uh, coach who... Uh, uh, was under consideration for a Jack Adams award, or even won an Adams award after uh, after replacing somebody partway through through a season. But like just the season it's been, and and like uh, like all the things that have happened, you know, the coaching change, uh, the, the executives, the commitment to diversity, uh, the holdouts at the beginning. They're out of the playoffs. They're in the playoffs. They're not, they're not going to make it. Oh, they're back in again. And that's that's the one thing where you got to tip your hat to Bruce Boudreaux is that they haven't given up, clearly. And even yeah. in the face of injury, even when, when they're eight points out of a playoff spot, they haven't given up. So the coach has to take some of the credit. He'll get a lot of the blame when things aren't going well, so you have to give him a lot of, a lot of the credit. I think he, he does a good job of keeping the guys interested. Well, he really has. And, you know, I, I kind of wonder, too, that 
a lot of this also hinges on Boudreaux and also where this team goes next season. As much as we're sitting here talking about what are the Canucks going to do, uh, there might be a conversation about what does Boudreaux prefer. Let's just say for a moment, yeah. Donnie, that yeah. um, uh, Alvin and Reno sits down with him and says, hey, we want to take a step back and we want to look at this as a two or three year type of build. What do you think? For a guy that might be on his last job or last chance to kind of you know not only coach but also win somewhere maybe, does that maybe come off to him as hey, I'd maybe rather go somewhere else and maybe something opens up after the playoffs that could be very enticing? I also kind of wonder the Boudreaux side of the equation if the Canucks this offseason decide to take a step back as a team. Well, that's a that's another uh, that's another item you bring up that I'm going to steal for our show. And uh, thanks for that. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Uh, no, that's that, that sure. I mean, he's 67 years old, and you know, um, what if Toronto gets knocked out? in the first round and what if it's ugly you know what if it's four or five straight does that job become open we know he was interested in an assistant job there before philadelphia maybe montreal um i i you know they there there would be jobs out there not that montreal would be closer to a stanley cup but toronto certainly would i'm just just spitballing here but no i i think so i i i guess maybe what it depends on is how much he believes in hughes Pedersen. Demko, we know he believes in him. Uh, maybe Miller, maybe Besser. If he really believes in that core, maybe he's of the of the belief that anything is possible if they put the right pieces around those players. Bo Horvat, thirty goal season. Um, it's it's been kind of weird because he he had the slow start and he's been just on an absolute heater. He's been criticized and now he's being praised. Uh, how do you view the the captain season on the whole? Well, you know, he gets a lot of the defensive assignments, or at least he, he, he did um, until pretty recently. But uh, I, you'd have to, you have to tip your hat to him and, and realize that when he had that January dip, it was post-COVID for him. And he had a hard time, you know, getting back into the rhythm of things. And hockey is so much, you guys know, it's, it's so much different from any other sport where, you know, it's not like you're, you know, you, 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 when you go to the gym, you can skate. Like, it's, it's just so different from any other sport. So it's excusable. I think it's been a very good season for him. I don't think he's their MVP. Again, I'll use the word or the phrase. He might be in the conversation. Uh, it's you know probably Demko. You could argue Miller as well, but I think you'd have to, you'd have to give him a big, uh, a big thumbs up. Um, and then, and keeping in mind that uh, everybody talks about Miller and Besser and their contract situation. Why is it that nobody talks about Bo or that his contracts up at the end of next year is going to be a UFA. If he has another season yeah. like this, I'll tell you what, somebody else is going to pay him like they, they care about him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it, that's the big one. I, th- I think JT and Bo, it doesn't yeah. look like you can bring both guys, especially with the, the salaries that uh, both guys can be commanding, especially JT Miller. Now, one player who's been playing a lot better recently is Vasily Putkolzin. Has his late season push here changed your outlook for him at all? I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. We had uh, not not uh, the Canucks put out there in post game interviews, and when was it in Arizona where Pit Colson had the beautiful setup to uh, to Bo and and uh, help me out there. Uh, Bo yeah. said afterwards that he's he loved his game from the get go, like not liked his game in the, from the middle of the season on. He said he loved his game from the start of the season on. Uh, so that to me said a lot. Uh, I just, uh, here's the thing. He hasn't scored in a long time, right? Yeah. 
and and nobody's talking about his goal streak because he looks like such a fit in the top six. And this is a pretty hockey savvy market, and people know what they see, and it's been pretty impressive. And he's he sees the ice well, and he's got an edge to his game. He goes to the net. Yeah, he's been really really impressive, especially lately. So uh, one of the things we we talked about quite a bit today was you know what late season development has been um, the most important. Uh, for this Canucks team? Is it Horvat finding his goal scoring, getting to 30 goals this year? Is it Pod Colson's play? Or is it Pedersen finally finding finding his game? Which one is it for you? I think I think I I I think all of us, I'm gonna speak for everybody here, which is probably not a good idea. I think we all felt that Horvat was gonna get his game back. But Pedersen just at the start of the season, I thought he just looked really poor and, and you're know, falling down all the time just wasn't shooting. I just looked really, really hesitant. I always use the phrase, it, you could see the gears on the side of his helmet turning as he got the puck. Yeah. You know, like he was just thinking too much. So I wasn't sure about that one. So I, I, and put, put Coles in, that, that's outstanding. Hats off to him. But I'll have to say Pedersen because my doubts were pretty high at the, you know, at the start of the season from what I saw and from his point production too, it just did yeah. not look good at all. And I, I think, he, you know, you look at his game and you could still argue he falls too much, but he's putting up the points now. So I'd say that's the, that to me is, is the most significant of those three. They're all significant, but Pedersen number one, just because my doubts were really, really high. Yeah. I mean, he looked so bad early on, right? Yeah. And that's what was so jarring about it. Now, obviously it's far different. And, you, you know, we kind of joke about how they're in the playoff race or out of the playoff race or in the playoff race or out of the playoff race. But, <laughs> you, you know, here's the thing. If they beat Vegas, well, then they're four points back of LA and they have a game against LA coming up. Like, I'm not yeah. saying they're going to make it, but if they win against Vegas, you actually have a chance again all of a sudden. As ridiculous as it sounds, you put yourself back in a position where you're only a couple of games away because you're only two back of Vegas at that point. You're potentially only two back of LA at that point. And a two-point gap can be closed with like six or seven games, Donnie. We've seen that happen before. But the question is, do they actually have it in them? To beat Vegas, especially no Besser, no Pearson, and, and that team maybe even getting Mark Stone back. Like, can the unthinkable actually happen and they beat Vegas and get back into this playoff r- race legitimately? Well, they, 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 beat, they beat them recently, and they got that game against uh, Dallas coming up on Monday, too. That's, a, yeah. that's another big one. But, you know, uh, I, I, I can't see why not. Just because, like I said, they, they beat them recently. Vegas has had kind of a Canuck-type season, although their excuses. Is are, is a pretty large one, a real one in, in injuries. So there's that. Yeah, sure. If if they beat Vegas, then what you're going to hear a lot of is what happened in the late 2000s, 2000s when Boudreaux took over Washington, and I believe the run they went on at the end of the season was 11 and one, mm-hmm. and they the Capitals ended up making the playoffs. So yeah. historically, that's not the only team to do that, but it comes to mind because of Boudreaux. So yeah, it could it, sure it can be done. I think I think the horses are there. The, the game that they have to worry about, and you guys know this, hearkening back to Detroit, is that Arizona game on Thursday. You, you, they can't they can't afford to blow that one. But in true Canuck fashion, I wouldn't be surprised. But they have to use that Detroit game if they beat Vegas. They got to use that Detroit game uh, as inspiration to do something special against Arizona because they might be looking ahead to Dallas uh, on Monday. But 
I, I mean, I just, I just don't know how, what, what to say about this team. I don't know, you know, what to predict because just when you think they're going to do well, they don't, and vice versa. Donnie, uh, always a pleasure. Uh, we appreciate it every week, and we'll talk again next Monday. Uh, you, you bet, uh, Dan. Good to see you back on the saddle. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Donnie. Uh, there is uh, Don Taylor. Uh, Donnie and Dolly, 10 to noon on Czech TV, Monday through Friday. People got fired up about this uh, McGillney conversation. Gordy Locke, McGillney scored 50 goals faster than Pavel. He did 50 and 60, if I recall. Then, uh, mm-hmm. as Donnie mentioned, uh, they broke up Ronning and McGillney, and his uh, play fell off. Yeah, no, he he's right. And then uh, Jeffro texts in too, and and says McGillney held out when he signed. He never lived up to the contract. That's the negative hanging over him. And anytime you deal with a holdout or guys signing offer sheets or anything, fans don't let those things go, right? Even Patterson this year when he struggled, there was a lot of uh, this is why you don't hold out. This is what happens. And people you know called him out for it. And I think a lot of the negativity around Patterson kind of hung around him not coming to camp on time because he was still unsigned. It wasn't even that he held out, but he was unsigned. Those things can't piss fans off. So Jeffro's not wrong in um, pointing that out too because now you look back in retrospect, the numbers look great, but it all comes down to expectations, right? Yeah. And well, when he comes have, in... The team didn't meet expectations. No, exactly. Either. No, exactly. I mean, the only time he made the playoffs was the first year he was in Vancouver and yeah. there was a first-round exit. That was the first... That was the only time they made the postseason. That was 95-96. So... All the other years they missed, and that is going to be disappointing. And the fact that it never clicked with Burray, that's also something that, you know, was frustrating for people. I will say this about McGillney, because especially now when you look back at what he went through coming over from Russia, him having to defect. And if you watch, you know, the Red Army documentary, it's it's just tremendous about uh, players, how they had to leave the Soviet Union and, you know, the stress they were under and how scary that situation was and how McGillney was one of the first ones and how much heat he had to take for doing so and how many threats he had to, you know, undergo and everything. You kind of wonder, you know, how burnt out did he get about everything, right? And, you know, the whole golf stuff and him going away and trying to think about other things. I wonder how much of that was a stress of what he had to go through as an individual as well, because he was so immensely talented. It was ridiculous. He uh, does end up winning a cup with the New Jersey Devils. Um, and I think he was one of those players where, as Donnie mentioned, like his talent was just through the roof. But you kind of felt like he had a switch and sometimes it was turned on. Sometimes it wasn't because there was just games um, that he kind of disappeared. I guess uh, Alexi Kovalev had that about him as well. And I guess you hear that with a lot of uh, supremely talented players, but uh, McGillney certainly when he was on uh, one of the most dominant players in his heyday and for me should be a a hockey hall of famer. It's uh, Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. Canucks Central uh, tomorrow, the uh, game. Canucks and Vegas Golden Knights. It's also the big telethon for the Canucks for Kids Fund. So I will be doing a lot of stuff with that tomorrow as we get ready for a big game between the Canucks and Golden Knights. It is Canucks Central.